dropping on my face. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. Hey there, and welcome to the Matt Watch That podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen, but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page, or I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, I wanted to talk about some of my favorite cover songs. I think the best types take the original and enhance it, reinterpret it. When I hear a cover that sounds exactly like the original but maybe a little louder, why waste the studio time? So I came up with a few guidelines to help direct my list. The original version had to be a notable or sizable hit. The song has to be written by the original performer. I didn't want to include singles written by a songwriting team that have been covered by multiple artists. Eh eh, not here. Lastly, the cover has to be considered the definitive version of the song. Now I'm not saying these are the greatest ever, just the ones that I prefer. Here is my top 10 list. Number 10. The Man Who Sold the World by Nirvana from MTV Unplugged originally written by David Bowie. It probably would have been higher on the list, but they clearly used an amplified acoustic guitar, rendering the entire concept of the show pointless. Number 9, Walk This Way by Run DMC, originally written by Steven Tyler and Joe Perry of Aerosmith. This version helped to mainstream rap music and was one of the first to combine elements of rock in the hip-hop genre. Number 8, Proud Mary by Ike and Tina Turner. Originally written by John Fogarty and performed by Creedence Clearwater Revival, even though the cover version is incredible, if you've never seen it played live by Tina, it's a masterpiece. Over eight minutes of Tina being simply the best. <laughs> All right, number seven, Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor. Originally written by Prince as part of The Family. This is an amazingly powerful song, and I think its popularity increased by how simplistic and emotional the music video was. Thumbs up. Number 6. Respect by Aretha Franklin. Originally written by Otis Redding, the song had an alternate rhythm and different lyrics. It was a pretty big crossover hit for the singer, but in the hands of the Queen of Soul, it became an anthem for women and anyone wanting R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Number 5. Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley originally written by Leonard Cohen. I think both versions of this song are amazing, but when Leonard Cohen says that the Jeff Buckley version is definitive, who am I to argue? Number four, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. Originally written and performed by Dolly Parton about her mentor, Porter Wagoner, her version is a bit melancholy as she was ending their partnership, but Whitney turned it into the classic ballad. Number three, All Along the Watchtower by Jimi Hendrix originally written by Bob Dylan. This is the type of song where you can say, I can name that tune in two notes. Iconic riff, completely reimagined the song. Number two, Hazy Shade of Winter by The Bangles, originally written by Paul Simon for Simon and Garfunkel. This version was included in the Less Than Zero soundtrack. The Bangles have never sounded better. Crisp harmonies, solid musicianship. This is reflective of how they really sound as a band. The single peaked at number two on the Billboard charts. And my number one favorite cover song will be revealed later in the podcast. 
How's that for a tease? On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of 5 stars. 1 star is skip it, 2 stars watch at your own risk, 3 stars standard fare, 4 stars worth checking out, and 5 stars must see. Now if I give a title 5 stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. I'll keep the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie Do the Right Thing from 1989 about the escalating racial tensions in the bed neighborhood of Brooklyn. Written, directed, and produced by Spike Lee, this was his third joint after She's Gotta Have It and School Days. An influential filmmaker and Academy Award winner who still has time to attend Knicks games. And we finally have a team to cheer for. The movie opens with Rosie Perez doing her best Fly Girls impression over the title sequence with Fight the Power by Public Enemy blasting in the background. She gets an introducing credit as it was her first feature-length film. You meet a bunch of interesting characters and there are intertwining storylines, but the main plot concerns Sal, an Italian-American who owns a pizzeria in a predominantly black neighborhood. He's portrayed by legendary actor Danny Aiello, who was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for this role. He was also in Once Upon a Time in America, Moonstruck, and The Godfather Part II. But what Italian actor wasn't in that movie? Random fact of Matt, his nephew is radio personality and Yankees broadcaster Michael Kay. Speaking of family, Sal runs the pizzeria with his sons. Pino is played by John Turturro, known for The Big Lebowski, Miller's Crossing, and Oh Brother Where Art Thou. He's the older, more aggressive brother, and shall we say, less racially sensitive. He's trying to convince Sal to sell the place, but Sal likes the neighborhood. He's never had a problem there. People grew up on his food. Another member of the staff is Mookie, portrayed by Spike Lee. He lives with his sister Jade and earns money delivering pizzas. He has a girlfriend named Tina, with whom he has a son. He's basically the link between the characters because he sees them on his routes. A frequent customer to the pizzeria is nicknamed Buggin' Out. He's played by Giancarlo Esposito, gifted actor. He's had roles on Once Upon a Time, Breaking Bad, its spin-off Better Call Saul, and The Mandalorian. He notices pictures on the wall displaying famous Italian-American people and wants to know why there aren't any influential black figures showcased. He wants to see representation for the people who are keeping Sal in business. Buggin' Out gets kicked out and wants to organize a boycott of the establishment. That's the catalyst for the main storyline. There are so many memorable characters in the neighborhood and they all have bold personalities brought out by an excellent cast. It features Samuel L. Jackson, Bill Nunn, Miguel Sandoval, Paul Benjamin, Steve White, Frankie Faison, Martin Lawrence, just a talented bunch. But my favorite character is DeMayer, who has found himself on hard times, down on his luck. He drowns his sorrow in high life. It has to be high life. He minds his own business, but is known throughout the neighborhood as the local drunk. He has a bit of a thing for mother-sister, though she frequently turns down his advances. This is a fun interplay, because the characters are portrayed by husband and wife Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee. Do the Right Thing feels like two separate movies, with racial discourse as the underlying theme. The first half is a comedy where we meet all these characters in the neighborhood. The second half starts when tensions between races reaches a fever pitch and becomes much more dramatic. 
I think the shift mostly works, though personally, I was enjoying the first half so much that I was really taken aback by the turn. I'm sure it's what Spike intended. It's a pretty straightforward narrative, but what keeps you entertained are the various characters and their interactions. The dialogue is funny, very natural, sounds like people just hanging around. They cleverly planted the seeds of racial divide throughout the film until it bursts at the seams. The initial climax of the film is really uncomfortable to watch, but it's also a sad reality that members of the African American community have to deal with. It's also a somber social commentary, as these issues are still prevalent today over 30 years later. I think the direction worked for this movie, but there are some shots and editing choices that I wouldn't do. I'm not a fan of actors speaking directly to the camera. Honestly, I, I don't really like anything that breaks the fourth wall, but it fits this narrative structure. The cinematography was captured by Ernest Dickerson, who is a frequent collaborator of Spike Lee. They were classmates at Tisch School for the Arts in New York. Barry Alexander Brown worked on the picture and would go on to edit five additional films for Spike. The soundtrack featured artists including Experienced Unlimited, Guy, Keith John, and Perry, but the highlight has to be Public Enemy with the track Fight the Power, which was written specifically for the film, helping the soundtrack reach number 11 on the Billboard R&B Hip Hop Albums chart. The film's score was composed by Bill Lee, father of Spike, which featured saxophonist Branford Marsalis. I'm more familiar with the work of his brother, Wynton Marsalis, who's a talented trumpeter that I tried to emulate my play after, to varying results. I suppose the music could be categorized as smooth jazz. It felt like a lazy summer day. My favorite track is How Long, very delicate piano playing, leading to a beautiful sax solo and complimentary orchestrations. The runtime is two hours. Can't give Spike a pass. Cut that down. It had a budget of $6 million and grossed $38 million at the box office. It was nominated for two Academy Awards. The character of Mookie makes an appearance in the film Red Hook Summer, while Rosie Perez reprises her role as Tina in the series She's Gotta Have It. Ultimately, the movie comes down to Jerry Curl Alert, Jackie Robinson, No Ball Playing Allowed, Helter Swelter, Mr. Boomboxic, Right Hand Left Hand, Catch a Breeze, and batter up. I give it four and a half out of five stars. If you've seen Do the Right Thing and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along. Each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. I've mentioned it before that the Opie and Anthony radio show was one of the most influential for me from a comedic standpoint. They provided me hours of entertainment, and I still look up clips on YouTube and laugh like it's the first time I'm hearing it. Now, I preferred when they were on WNEW in New York, as opposed to the later years on Sirius XM Satellite. Broadcast radio forced them to be creative. They weren't allowed to curse on air, so they had to find other ways to express themselves. When one would slip by, there was a dump button which had a delay. Both hosts were from Long Island, or at least lived on Long Island in their youth. There was an instant relatability factor with them. They would make references that wholly captured growing up on Long Island, and that's on Long Island, not in. There was one moment in particular that featured another Long Island native, Jim Brewer from Valley Stream, and it happened during the commercial break. Yes, that was a thing. Opie and Anthony were doing a live read for Razor Rollerboard Scooters. What should have been a 60-second commercial went on for almost eight minutes. 
Jim reminded them of that kid in every Long Island town that terrorized the neighborhood with his electric scooter. It could be the funniest moment of pure improvisation on that show. That reminded me of other live reads gone wrong, this time by my favorite comedian Bill Burr. I know he's been canceled like 37 times now. He was reading a sponsorship on his podcast for Sherry's Berries. It's almost impossible to say without his Bostonian inflection, Sherry's Berries! He failed to look at the copy prior to recording and just laughed his way through it. In another, he basically does a director's commentary while reading the copy for Uber and craps all over it. I think companies ask to advertise on his podcast just for the abuse. It's like being insulted by Don Rickles. It's a badge of honor. I'll post these clips on the Matt Watch That playback playlist on YouTube. There is some offensive language, so caution before clicking. It's now on you. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about... The Wonder Years, starring Fred Savage as 12-year-old Kevin Arnold, who is coming of age in small-town America in the turbulent 60s, where he has to deal with his family, friends, girls, and social issues reflective of the changing culture. The comedy drama was co-created by the husband-and-wife team of Neil Marlins and Carol Black. It was executive produced by showrunner Bob Brush. I mentioned in episode 2 of this podcast that I believe the pilot was perfect. I was hooked from day one. Your emotions run the gamut throughout the show. Pottery Will Get You Nowhere has some of the finest acting captured on film by Dan Loria and Allie Mills, who play parents Jack and Norma Arnold. The whole cast is perfection. Olivia Diabo as the free-spirited sister Karen, Jason Hervey as the big brother bully Wayne, Josh Saviano as the allergy-prone best friend Paul, and Danica McKellar as the girl next door, Winnie Cooper. This was a rare cross-generational show, I could relate to the main character because I saw that reflected in my own life. An older generation could reminisce since they lived through that era the first time around. Throughout the series' run, my grandmother and I would talk on the phone after the episode and would recap it together. She would tell me about certain events that happened in the show that related back to her own life. That's an experience I've never had with any other show until Stranger Things. Except this time, I'm the older person reflecting. Every December, I've had two weeks off for the holiday season, and I binge-watch as much of the series as I can. The tradition started a few years ago when The Wonder Years was finally released on DVD, and I received it as a Christmas gift. It was my absolute favorite series growing up, but rarely shown on television in syndication, and wasn't available on VHS or DVD due to music license clearances. Back in the day when production studios would negotiate contracts with record companies, it didn't cover home video, which was a new concept for television series. There was never a thought that one day people would actually want to buy a series on VHS or DVD. But the home entertainment market boomed in the 90s, and now with streaming services, there was a ton of money to be made. And the music is so prevalent in The Wonder Years. It was another character in the series that if they released it without the music or with evergreen replacements, it would not be the same show. This brings me to my number one favorite cover song. If you know The Wonder Years, it shouldn't be a surprise. It served as the theme song for the series, with a little help from my friends by Joe Cocker, originally performed by The Beatles. The versions could not be any different. You had Ringo singing lead on this bubbly track, 
What would you think if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? It's so jolly, it could be on Romper Room. Then you had Joe Cocker with that raspy, soulful voice. What would you do if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Nope. No, I wouldn't. I want to hear more. And those female background vocalists? Try with a little help from my friends. Thank you, the Madettes. It's just brilliant. I love everything about it. This is what a cover song should do. Reimagine, reinterpret, reinvent. And if you've never seen his live performance of this song at Woodstock, oh man, it's an experience. Kudos to Time Life and Star Vista, who secured the additional licenses for 96% of the songs featured in the show. The rest had to be swapped out, but I'm glad we're able to have the majority of this brilliant series intact. And good news, it was recently announced that The Wonder Years is coming back. Fred Savage returns, but this time as executive producer and director of the pilot. Original series co-creator Neil Marlins is a consultant. The reboot will still occur in the 1960s, but will focus on a black middle-class family in Alabama. Over the original run, it won Emmy Awards, Golden Globes, and a Peabody. I hope you watch this show. It's the original Nostalgia series. The Wonder Years was on for six seasons, 115 episodes, from 1988 to 1993. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I do plan on having an interactive element, but I need those listeners. So follow, subscribe, like, and spread the word. Until next time, I got it, I'm gone. The comedy drama was co-written by the Hubba Hubba, by the Hubba Hubba. <laughs> And was one of the first to combine elements of rock in the hop-hip, in the hop-hop genre. In another, he basically does a director's commentary while reading the copy for Boober. For Boober. <laughs> for Boober. We're gonna get it high. <laughs> oh, I love Joe Cocker.